Hey everyone, welcome to Northview. My name is Danae and I'm one of the youth pastors here. We're so glad that you're joining our online service today. We know you're probably watching from home either by yourself, with family members or roommates, and we're glad that we've been able to respect the government's restrictions to keep our community safe and healthy. And yet we know that an important part of being the church is being able to gather together with other believers to support each other and worship together. Which is why we're excited that the newest set of BC Public Health guidelines encourage people to slowly and carefully double their bubble. So as your health and conscience allows you, we also wanna encourage you to invite a friend or two or another family to join you in these worship services. Keep in mind that the guidelines are always changing, so stay up to date with what Dr. Henry recommends. Let's gather and worship together safely. Now, every summer, our children's ministry pours themselves into putting on an amazing day camp for kids in our community. And good news, it's still happening. It will look a little bit differently this year, but our children's pastors are working really hard to provide a fun gospel-centered day camp experience for you. We're sure you have more questions about what that's gonna look like, so you can check out the website for more details and information. Registration opens May 25th. And of course, if you have kids with you right now, we encourage you to check out the children's service video this weekend. And before we head off into our service, we have an exciting announcement from our campus pastors. Hey Northview, my name's Greg. I'm one of the pastors here and you are with us behind the scenes in the Northview studio. This is where all the action takes place. The magic happens. Jeff sits there. He does his sermon. Uh, but we're not here to talk about how the sermon gets filmed. We're actually here to talk about what's going to happen in this studio uh, in the days to come. I'm Lexi. I'm a producer of a new show that we're excited to bring to you called In Good Company that will be filmed here. <laughs> I'm going to be joined by uh, two co-hosts, Joshua Scott and Jesse Schellenberg, and we're going to be talking about how the Bible impacts our everyday living. And so we're excited to be having this conversation together, and we're going to try to find creative ways to include you as the viewers and listeners into that conversation as well. This will be airing on Wednesdays on YouTube, Northview.org, as well on a podcast. So it's kind of like the extra podcast? Different. Jeff and Ezra won't be as involved each week, and so probably less fighting. We're excited for you to join us. Uh, you can keep your eyes on our social media for more details to come. That sounds like a really great show. And now we are grateful that we have Frank and the team who are going to be leading us together in a few songs of worship. Would you pray with us? Heavenly Father, we are so excited to worship with you today. Father, would we grasp how high, how wide, and how deep your love is for us? Which mark the chosen one bring 
continuing in our sermon series in Esther with Pastor Jeff. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Esther chapter 2 to follow along. I can't tell you how many movies I've watched over the last few weeks that have been interrupted. Uh, maybe like you, I like going to the movie theater. I like spending time at the theater. You need to get your popcorn, you sit down, and then in one sitting you can watch the entire film and not be interrupted except maybe by the person whose cell phone goes off in front of you or that guy who gets up halfway through to refill his popcorn or go to the bathroom, whatever. Very few interruptions at the movie theaters, but at home when you've got kids, interruptions happen every 10 minutes, five minutes, 
I've got three children and they are repeatedly walking in and asking us for something. My wife and I are sitting there trying to watch a movie, maybe on my computer or whatever. And all, we, all it is is interruptions. And she'll go off and do something with my daughter and come back and she'll say, okay, where were we? And I'll have to give a review of where we were. And then sometimes she'll go off and say, just keep watching. And then I keep watching and she comes back and I have to kind of describe in detail all the things that just happened. It's very frustrating. Those of you who have children know exactly what I mean. The best way to watch a movie, best way to hear any story is, is in one sitting. You get the full feel for it. And you get the nuances in it and the front matches the back and all those sorts of things. So the best way to read the book of Esther is in one sitting. It is one of those stories that completely coheres, that there are little things that are said at the beginning that come to uh, importance later on. But because we can't do that here as a church, what we have to do is we have to break it up. And so we're doing Esther each chapter every week. Last week we did Esther chapter one. And so uh, we took a break uh, for the week. Some of you went and got some popcorn. You've come back now and you're saying, okay, catch me up to where we are. So let me catch you up to where we are. Chapter one of the book of Esther starts with King Xerxes of Persia having a grand party. It's a 180 day party, six months of celebrations. He takes the high nobles and important people of the kingdom and he travels all over the land, showing them all the great architecture and important things of his land, trying to show off to them how important he is and valuable his kingdom is. He ends that uh, 180 days with a week-long garden party in a very large garden kind of affixed to his uh, winter palace in the city of Susa. And at that party, he gets drunk. Uh, they, they drank uh, alcohol for seven days straight. The bar was completely open and he, in good Persian tradition, got completely sauced and decided at that point that he had shown off everything in his kingdom from the architecture of other cities and now in this grand garden that's been totally done up for seven days, he showed off everything he had and he thought to himself in his drunken state, what else can I show? And he thought, ah, I can show off my wife who was having her own party in another part of, of the citadel, of another part of the palace. So he ordered her to come. Vashti is her name. He ordered her to come over and to show off for the men. He wanted her to wear her, her crown and maybe something nice or maybe not much at all. He just wanted her to come over. He was treating her like he would treat one of his concubines. She got word of this and she, in good self-respect, said, no, there's no way I'm going to go over there and show off for your friends. He found out that that was her answer and immediately lost his mind. He got very, very angry and he gathered his advisors together and he said, what should be done about Vashti? What does the law require? His advisors said, look, if you don't punish her, then the entire kingdom is going to learn that every wife can disobey her husband and anybody, if they really don't want to obey the king, won't obey the king. So there's all sorts of things at stake here, both your standing Xerxes and our standing as husband Xerxes. So you need to banish her from the kingdom and he does. So at the end of chapter one, what we're left with is a vacant crown, a vacant uh, queenship. And so he's got to find a new one. 
And that's where chapter two begins. So here's what I want to do. I want to spend the next few moments and I want to go through chapter two of Esther. And then at the end, I want to just give you a couple of applications that we learn from this. Again, I just want you to feel this story. This is a fascinating portion of this, of this story. So we'll start in chapter two, verse one. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the, excuse me, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now you saw that first word there where he says later. Actually, it's quite a bit later. The gap between chapter one and chapter two in most scholars' minds is years. What happened in those years after the after Vashti was banished from the kingdom? and the search begins for a new queen, is that Xerxes, according to one of the, the great historians of the ancient world, a guy named Herodotus, he wrote a book describing these days, and he said that Xerxes actually went out and he tried to conquer other kingdoms, and he didn't win, he lost, terribly so. When he came back from that humiliating defeat, he indulged sensually in everything he could get his hands on, including the wives of his nobles and princes and those important advisors that he has. In fact, his affairs with the wives of his important colleagues led to his ultimate assassination in his bed years later by those people. But what you got is a king who has lost, he's kind of feeling bad for himself, and he remembers, you saw that word, King Xerxes' fury had subsided, and he remembers, years later, he remembers Vashti. And that word remembers is used in the Old Testament a lot of times to talk about how he reminisces, how he remembers fondly. What he's doing here is he's basically remembering Vashti warmly, and he's starting to think, ooh, maybe my drunken decision wasn't such a good one, because I miss my wife. I miss somebody to be near me. I miss, I miss uh, every part of her companionship, and, and I miss her deeply. So he starts sharing this. Maybe he gets down a little bit. And he's, his advisors say, listen, we gotta, his, his attendants say, we've got to figure something out. And so they come up with this idea. And, and the idea is that uh, a grand search should be made. And the way that the search should happen is that each region of the kingdom, every local part of Persia has a commissioner in charge of it, kind of like a mayor in charge of it. And each region then will produce through the eyes and the hands of each commissioner, uh, all the beautiful women in, in the kingdom. 
So if a commissioner's out on the street and he sees a beautiful woman, he will recruit her, or maybe he might hold a, you know, a grand talent show or whatever, it doesn't matter. He will try to find all the beautiful women he can, put them all on a bus, send them all off to Susa where they will join the, the harem, the, the house of women, the concubines of the king. Then they will have a competition to decide which one of those women will be the one who is chosen for the king. Now, the rest of this passage is going to describe some of that competition and how it happened. But that's what the king likes. Of course he does, right? Okay, so we're basically going to look for every beautiful woman in the kingdom, and I'm going to have my pick of the lot? Yeah, that's, that's our idea. Okay, that sounds good. So verse 8, or sorry, verse 5, now there was a, a citadel in the citadel of Susa, a Jew, of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. There's two characters introduced here. Mordecai is the first one. You might remember last week that I said the Persians conquered the Babylonians and the Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem years prior. When the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they basically dragged away all the important people from that area. It was a re-education program. If we can take their, their most important, smartest people away, then they'll be weaker for it, and we can re-educate them in the Babylonian way. Mordecai was one of these young guys. Mordecai was brought into the Babylonian kingdom. He was raised in Babylonian traditions. And then the Persians came and took over, and he somehow got his way to Susa, which is kind of now the new capital of, of, of the Persian Empire. So he is uh, an important Jewish man. He is not just a commoner. He's an important guy. As you'll see later, he works actually for the king in an important official capacity. He has a niece, uh, sorry, a cousin, and his cousin's name is Esther or Hadassah in Hebrew. Um, she's an orphan. She's a lot younger than, than him. And her parents were gone, and so as, a, as kind of the only remaining family member, he's brought her up as his, as his own. And as she's gotten older and older, and she's probably at this time in her late teens, maybe early 20s, the thing that is most remarkable about her is that she, in the Hebrew here, the original language, is beautiful of form and face. So the translators say she's got a really good figure. That's an old statement. She's hot, man. Right? It's the way we would talk about it nowadays. She, she is a good-looking young woman. That's important because, as you can see, she is going to be one of the ones who is recruited by her local commissioner to go. And that's what you find in verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who, is, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him 
and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. So she's been found by the commissioner. She's so beautiful, it's hard to miss her. He brings her to Susa, and she immediately, even though she's been put in this very difficult situation, everything's been happening to her, okay? She's been recruited, by the way, in those days, if you got recruited, that was not like, hey, do you wanna come or not? It was, no, you're coming to Susa. So she has been forcibly removed from her family, dragged off, right? Placed in the middle of this location, Fortunately, uh, uh, Mordecai is going to be there locally to, to still connect with her. But there she is. Her community is gone. Um, and she is thrust into this harem. She makes the best of this situation, guys. She actually wins the favor of the eunuch, the, the, the guy who was in charge of the women's harem. He just thinks she's remarkable. And so he starts to give her special treatment. He, he, she, he gives her uh, the special food, right? Probably the same food everybody else had, but it's the best portions of the foods, right? So they get the chicken neck and she gets the, you know, the chicken leg. Uh, they, they get the beef tongue and she gets the sirloin steak or, or whatever. She's also given uh, the best treatments. She's given the best location in the harem, not the one by the bathroom, apparently. Uh, she's been given the best attendance, chosen specifically from the king's palace. She has, in other words, a competitive advantage over all of her peers. And this has happened because she somehow won the favor of the chief attendant. So, verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's term came to go into, into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months. So here's, here's the rules of the game. She had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take, from, uh, take, take with her from the harem up to the king's palace. And in the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name, this is a fascinating game that's being constructed, right? It's like the Hunger Games or like uh, uh, American Idol or Canadian Idol or whatever. Here's the way the game is played. Um, she is going to spend a year on having beauty treatments on her. Those beauty treatments are going to involve oil and myrrh. That's important because um, that language of oil and myrrh, that's used in most places in the Old Testament. It's used in sexual contexts. So just so you're clear as to what it is that she's being prepared to do. For six months, they soak her in oil and myrrh. And then for another six months, she gets cos cosmetics. When the time comes at the end of those six months, she gets to have an opportunity to go and spend one evening, one night, evening, come back in the morning with the king. She gets to take with her any one or two things that she wants to bring with her from the harem. And... That's left unstated here. We don't know what that is. It might be a nice piece of clothing. It might be uh, an instrument. We don't know. 
anything that she thinks will help win her the game. After the night's over, she's going to go off into this other area with uh, just be, she's going to become one of the king's concubines unless he calls her back. And if he calls her back, then she's won. So Esther's ready to go. She uh, is, everything is building up to this one moment. I remember my wife used to say to me that she never liked running races in high school because she believed that every, everything resting on one, you know, like 30 second or 60 second race was so unfair. You don't get a second chance. Right, that's what's happening here. You don't get a second chance. You get one chance, one night to impress the king and become the queen, or you're gonna be a concubine for the rest of your life. So, what happens? Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. This is actually some strategy employed on her part. Like, who do you ask regarding what I should take with me to the king? And so she asks the guy who knows the king, the one who's shown her favor, the one who is interested in her and given her all the special treatment in, in the harem. What should I bring? Now, we think it probably is some sort of clothing because it says that she wins the favor of everyone who saw her as she was on her way there. So probably he said, man, wear this because the king will think it's fantastic. So she takes off to King Xerxes. I like to think maybe it was those new eyelashes though that the ladies have. Sorry, I had to say it. But he won the favor of all who saw her. Verse 17, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. You can imagine this. The scene here is really, I mean, if I were making a movie of the scene of when she shows up to the king's palace, what you would make is you'd have the door, the king would open, the door would open and the king would be kind of indifferent in the distance because he's gone through so many other women. He's probably tired of this. This one's going to be no different. She goes in, the door shuts behind. We don't know what happens behind the door. We don't know if there's dancing or music or we don't know. It's left unstated. Fill in the blank yourself. The next morning, the door opens, she walks out, and behind her is the king following wistfully, longing to see her again. He's been smitten. She's won the game. And so there's a great banquet in her name. She is now Queen Esther, been placed in the position that Vashti once had. Verse 19, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther, who had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. But during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. 
And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. And all this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. That's an important last line. This whole scene is going to come up later. You need to remember that it happened. You need to remember that that Mordecai, who is an important official at the king's gate, that's who worked there. Important officials and military uh, personnel. And he hears two of those military personnel talking, or maybe he hears through the grapevine that they are going to assassinate the king. He reports it to Esther, who reports it to the king. They investigate it and find out it's true. So Mordecai gets all the credit for revealing this, for protecting the king's life. And it's recorded in the annals, in the book. Remember the book. Remember the book. All right. What do we learn from this chapter, especially what do we learn from Esther and the story about her. I got two things here, okay? Here they are. Number one, make lemonade. And number two, God makes lemonade. Here's what I mean. Number one, make lemonade. Um, you know that saying, when life throws you lemon, you, lemons, you, make lemonade. Do your best with what you've got, in other words, instead of pining for some better fruit, for some better providence, for some better situation, right? We say bloom where you're planted. I think that's what Esther does here. So you go back to Esther 2, verse 8. It says, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Suda and put under the care of Haggai. Do you notice the passives there? They were brought and they were placed under the, under, under the tutelage of Haggai. She didn't have much choice in that, right? She's been given lemons. This is a lemon. But Esther, who was also taken, notice the passage, passive to the king's palace and entrusted, she's just, it's all happening to her, to, to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Verse nine, she, and then you have active verbs, pleased him and won his favor. So all this stuff has been happening to her. And then she turns and takes that and acts in this moment, with all of those lemons, she makes lemonade. I'm here. I might as well make the best of it. Now, I, I got to tell you, that's remarkable to me. And the reason it's remarkable to me is because if I were in Esther's shoes, one of the things that I would have been doing when I got taken to that harem is I would have sat in the corner and I would have reflected on what has just taken place to me. The providence that's taken place to me and how frustrated I was with the God who brought me here. I would be sitting in the corner saying, what is going on? I have been removed from all my plans, all of my dreams. Now I'm in this weird game with the king. Who knows if I'll even win it? I'm mad at you, God. That's what I would have done in the corner. But she doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't mope. She doesn't complain. She gets on with it looks around and says, right, I might as well make the best of this situation. You know, there's that old, uh, there's an old uh, image that sometimes we bring out. Uh, it's about an old man yelling at a cloud. I actually have it here. The Simpsons made fun of it one time with uh, Grandpa Simpson yelling at a cloud. Uh, and it's funny, this is an old saying, you know, like, why don't you just go out and bark at the moon? Why don't you go out and yell at the clouds? Well, what's the point of yelling at a cloud? Well, there, there is no point. It's not gonna, you're not going to change the clouds by screaming at them. The clouds showed up. So you might as well get on with it. It's, a cl it's cloudy now. 
but I want it to be sunny. It's not. It's not. And that's what, essentially what Esther did. She had a short memory. My son who plays baseball, it's one of the things that makes pitchers really good in baseball is, you know, you can give up a double, you might give up a triple, you might give up a home run, but the great baseball players, the great pitchers are those who get over it. If you stand on the mound and you start thinking about all the ways that this, that this went wrong and I shouldn't have thrown that pitch to that guy and if I had a chance to do it over, I would have done that. If that's all you're thinking about, the next guy's going to hit a home run off you too. And then you'll be thinking about him and then the next guy's going to hit a home run. If you're a golfer and you're standing over the putt and you miss the easy putt, then you miss the other one. One bad hole can end up turning into eight bad holes if you don't get over it. If you don't just say, listen, I can't do anything about what happened. I'm in the circumstance I'm in now. Now I say all that because you and I have missed our fair share of putts. Uh, we have thrown some fastballs straight down the plate and they've been crushed. We have been given some lemons. And sometimes we look around and it, some of it is due to our own choices and other times it's due to the choices of others. We've been thrust into some hard providences, both health-wise and COVID-wise and circumstance-wise and marriage. We've been thrust into lots of difficult circumstances. And it's very easy for us to stand there or sit over in the corner and start complaining to God. Why is this happened to me? What is going on here? And yet what we learn from Esther is get on with it. Well, you could yell at the cloud if you want, but the clouds are there. You can complain about the putt or you can get on with it. I remember a number of years ago, I was um, working at a car rental agency, and it was between the time that I came back from New Zealand, the first time that I came back, and I was looking for a, a ministry position. I wanted to be a young adults pastor or something like that. I wanted to work with young adults, and so I had applied to like 70 different churches to become a young adults pastor. And I didn't hear much back from anyone. I remember every morning complaining when I was going to budget rent a car to God, why haven't you given me a ministry? Why are the clouds so dark, right? Why is everything going wrong? What I didn't realize at the time, of course, was that while I was complaining to God, uh, working at Budget Rent-A-Car in Bellingham, Washington, surrounding me was a bunch of young adults, people who were tied to Western Washington University or Whatcom Community College. The very kind of people that I wanted to work with were right in front of me. But I was so busy complaining about what God hadn't done that I didn't realize what he had done. I say that because, look, there is work and ministry for you here. Wherever here is, this, this cloudy, hard providential place, there's something for you here. But it won't happen unless you get on with it. It won't happen unless you make lemonade. Second one, last one. Not only should we make lemonade, we should know that God makes lemonade. Now, here's what I mean by that. Um, okay, when you read this passage of scripture, do you think that Esther is a positive example for us or a negative example. I just gave you a place where I think she's a positive example for us. But when you look, you take a step back and you look at the things that she's doing, the ways that she's playing this game, do you think that she's a positive example for us? 
So what about her willingness to play the game with the king? She knows it's a sexual game. Is this a good, faithful thing for a follower of God, a good Israelite to do, even though they're in exile? What, what about the fact that she eats non-kosher food? Or she bows down to the king's decree? Now, I bring up those things, right? The, the food and the bowing down to the decree because um, what she does in exile, she's not in her homeland in Jerusalem where everyone around her shares her viewpoints. She's in a foreign land and she's starting to take on the customs of that land. She's not the only person who's ever been in exile before from the, the nation of Israel. You've got guys like Daniel, who was, who was dragged off like Mordecai by the Babylonians. Uh, you, you've got Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Do you guys remember what they did? Like when the king told them, all right, you guys are going to eat this food. And they said, no, we're not. Because our God has a law. And he bans us from eating those things. Why don't you just give us vegetables and you'll see that God, our God will make us stronger. And he did. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... <laughs> We're told that they need to bow down to the image of the king. And they said, we're not bowing down. Well, if you don't bow down, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Right, here's the deal. Uh, our God can save us from all of your fire. But even if he doesn't, we are not bowing down to this king. And of course, you know that they go into the fiery furnace and another figure is in there protecting them. Daniel goes into the den of lions and the lions shut their mouths. They're faithful. They follow God's law and it works out ultimately for their good. And you and I read those stories and we say, yes, those are the kinds of examples that we have before us. That's what it means to be faithful disciples of Jesus. To receive the grace of Jesus and to act in line now, faithfully following his way. But is that Esther? I gotta tell you, I think the answer to that is likely no. Karen Jobes, one of the commentators on this passage, she said, how would you use this episode from Esther's life to teach virtue to your teenage daughter as she stands on the threshold of womanhood? What message would she get? Make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men. Hmm? Use your body to advance God's kingdom. The ends justify the means? Are those the lessons that she would learn? Well, no, probably. So in the end, we see this, and we see that Esther's actually not a great example in this, in this case. She is actually capitulating, giving in to the cultural whim in disobedience to a lot of the things that God said that guys like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't give in to. And yet... What you see is God using her actions as, in, as, as imperfect and faithless as they are. You see God using her actions in the same way he used Daniel's actions to achieve his good and plans for her and for his people. She doesn't, in other words, need to get it 100% right for God to still keep his word and to take care of her and everyone else. I take that really warmly. Because what it means is that my attempts, because I'm a lot more like Esther than I am Daniel, I'll be honest. I don't always get it right. 
I struggle to follow God. I struggle to figure out how you're supposed to live faithfully in the midst of a culture that's telling you to do all sorts of other things. Sometimes I'm faithful and other times I'm not. But my attempts to work out how to live faithfully in the present world are imperfect at best, but God can't be stopped. Even with my stupid, imperfect obedience, he still uses it to achieve his end. Karen Jobes again, she said, regardless of whether they always knew what the right choice was or whether they had the best of motives, God was working through even their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill his perfect purposes. Other than Jesus, even the godliest people in the Bible were flawed, often confused, and sometimes outright disobedient. And we're no different from them. Yet our gracious God omnipotently works his perfect plan through them, through us, and most surprisingly, even through powerful political structures that sometimes operate in evil ways. Or to put it in the Jeff Bucknam version, even if you suck at this, God's got you. Even if Christianity is something that you look at and you say, man, I'm not very good at it. God's plans for you are still working out. He's not depending on your ability to do it. He's depending on Christ's ability that has already been done. So, let me finish by just telling you. My sons, when they were little, uh, used to play, we used to play basketball a little bit. Um, they, of course, when they're little, they can't throw the basketball anywhere near the hoop. And half the time when they're really little, they throw it in the opposite direction. But I, what I used to do is they used to take the ball and I'd say, shoot the ball, shoot the ball. And sometimes they'd shoot it and they'd try to shoot it toward the hoop and it would go immediately, like, straight backwards. And I would have to grab that ball midair, kind of pretend it was an airplane and go shh, and then I'd put it in the hoop and they'd laugh and think that was just great. They'd put their hands up in the air, yay, because they had scored the basket, hadn't they? I always think about that image when I think about these sorts of things because that's really like us, isn't it? We're the ones who are down there throwing up our best attempts that are sometimes in the opposite direction from what God intends for us, and yet he takes those attempts, he flies them through the air, and he achieves all his goals with them. And that warms my heart. You may be a lemon, in other words, but God can make some pretty good lemonade. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace, and I'm thankful, Lord, that... uh, Passages like this in scriptures remind us, Lord, that the people who are in the Bible are just like us, people who are struggling to figure it all out. But your grace is sufficient for them, and it's sufficient for us. So would you encourage us in these days, Father? We want to get it right. We want to honor you. We want to follow in your way. But ultimately, Lord, we need you. We need you to take the ball that we're throwing all over the place, and we need, we need you to score with it, Father. And we know you will. You promised to do it, to work out your perfect ends for those who are your possession. So it's in joy. It's in that joy of that little kid, Father, with their arms in the air, cheering that we trust you now, knowing that it's your work that is done perfectly, even though ours is done so imperfectly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we have Adam here with us to give us an update from the CARE Fund. Six feet, six feet, six feet, six feet. A few weeks ago, we invited you to give to the CARE Fund, and so many of you responded generously, which means as a church, we've been able to start new initiatives to give back to the local community. And next week, we're excited to show you how this money's being used. Let's go back to Frank and the band. 
today, we would love to leave you with a blessing from God's Word from Ephesians 3. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week.